According to the church calendar, the first Sunday of Advent is New Year's Day. What might be a little distressing about that fact is that Advent uh, helps us to remember that we are living on borrowed time and that one day that time will be up and the apocalypse will arrive. So all of our plans and, and our goals and our structures, as great as they are, will come to a screeching halt. Happy New Year! <laughs> no matter how much ebb and flow we have in the world and in our lives, and how much of that occurs in contemporary culture, fascination regarding the apocalypse is a nearly universal experience. We just can't shake it off. Uh, we see this in poetry. We see it uh, in novels. We also see it in film. Consider these films. The environmental apocalypse that is present in Waterworld, that great 1995 cinematic bomb that lost millions of dollars, uh, still a great film. Kevin Costner playing one of the few survivors of a polar ice cap melt catastrophe as a NOAA 2.0. Uh, consider the medical apocalypse. I Am Legend with Will Smith in 2007, in which the world is of great uh, torment because of a virus, and the virus has uh, essentially made people into vampiric monsters, and so the few survivors are always in a perilous situation. Or consider the nuclear apocalypse, that is, uh, The Book of Eli, a film, and in fact, film series, starring Denzel Washington, that you should rent tonight. This idea that we are all headed toward some sort of climactic moment that will alter forever the landscape of life is not something that is unique to Christians, though Jesus Christ himself had a unique take on the subject. Jesus uh, was entirely convinced of the apocalypse and believed that the great power, the ancient power, would rise up and would take away, melt away, everything that brought injustice, hurt to his beloved creation. And so that is the view that he was working with. I want to speak tonight about the confidence and ignorance of Christ. I know that's a little, you know, I know but the confidence and ignorance of Christ as it relates to the apocalypse. The context is important. Jesus uh, spent a large part of his time in the Jewish temple. This is toward the end of his life. And when he was in the temple, he was criticizing with ferocious language the hypocrisy of the religious hierarchs. They were there uh, criticizing him in return. He's leaving this rather intense moment and walking away from the temple, and his disciples decide at that point to function as tourists. They look back at the temple and say, isn't the architecture fantastic? Maybe they were trying to interrupt the tension of the moment, but they, they point out the architecture, and Jesus uses this moment uh, to launch uh, into a large section of teaching regarding uh, what will happen to this precious temple, and what will happen in the future. 
Jesus speaks not only about the temple being torn down, but about nations rising against nations. Uh, there will be signs in the heavens. There will be false Christs that will arise, and, and then the Christ will finally come and gather up his elect from the four corners of the earth. Some of these things that Jesus prophesies happen shortly after his death and resurrection. Others of them have yet to happen. But Jesus is looking into the future, and he's doing so, again, with confidence and ignorance, a surprising degree of both. Confidence. When I speak of confidence, I'm referring to Jesus' confidence in his God-given role. Now, some of you have a great deal of confidence in what you believe you are called to be or to do. Some of you, as I've understood, always had a hunch that you were going to be a writer, and a writer you are. Some of you are artistically minded, and you're into photography. You were into photography when you were small, always borrowing people's cameras and damaging a few of them, and now you're a photographer. Uh, some of you uh, have a hunch that you ought to be something, and you have yet uh, to achieve that which you think you ought to be. Jesus was one of those people uh, who really did, in a, in a profound way, own his personhood and his role. He knew what God called him to do, and he was going to do it. And he was called not just to be an instructor of souls and not just to be a curer of ailments. He was called to be an apocalyptic magistrate. He was called to be the one who would usher in God's new reign in the world. We know this because he repeats, as a refrain in this passage, the coming of the Son of Man. He is speaking to his disciples about the coming of the Son of Man. Two things about that. Now, that it would sound very strange to his disciples, that the Son of Man will come and do thus and such, because for them, the Son of Man is already here. They can point out it. He's right there. Why do you need to arrive when you've already arisen, so to speak? But what Jesus is saying to them is that his life, and not only his life, but his task will have continuity, longevity to it. What he's doing with them now has a particular purpose. Then there will be an ellipsis, a time when he's not as immediate, and then he will come to be with them again. And when he's coming to be, them, be with them again, his ministry and mission shifts. So he is speaking about his longevity, but he's also using this loaded title for himself, Son of Man. He uses it three times in this passage, Son of Man. Now, until rather recently in Christian history, many scholars thought that this self-ascribed title was Jesus' way of emphasizing his humanity, essentially saying, I'm just like you, I put on my shoes one shoe at a time, you know, I have to look at myself in the mirror every day, and I notice lines that are there that weren't there before. Somebody once said of a former president of the United States, I would vote for him because he looks like a guy you can have a beer with. Many people think this is essentially what Jesus is saying when he uses the term son of man. I'm just like you, aren't you comforted? The truth is, this title is not emphasizing Jesus' humanity. If you understand its, its origins, it emphasizes his divinity, the fact that he's not like us. It comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who uses the title Son of Man at a poignant moment in his own visionary reflections. There's this grand scene where the heavens are pulled away and he can see uh, into the very kind of throne room of God. He has this great visionary experience, and he's taking it all in, and he sees this human 
coming before God, uh, this human who is going to be a threat to all corrupt earthly powers. All of the nations are going to rage against this human, but this human being will inaugurate God's kingdom in such a way that that kingdom will never be thwarted and all of the nations of the world will, will finally submit to this grander, greater empire of God. And so this is what it says in Daniel uh, 7, this cosmic vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This son of man in Daniel's vision has two qualities I'd like to look at briefly. First of all, this son of man possesses uh, qualities that are uniquely ascribed to God, God himself. He receives glory, sovereign power, authority, and worship. Words in the Old Testament that were only associated with God. Secondly, this son of man is given a specific task. And it's an apocalyptic task. He is to supplant the nations of the world with the kingdom of God. So Jesus, knowing these texts, applies this apocalyptic title to himself because he believes that he is the magistrate of this apocalypse. He is the one who is going to enact it, to make it happen. He is going to shake the cosmos in order to bring the empire of God to the world. And he is confident about his role in this. When we think about the humility of Christ, we can admire many aspects of his character that brought him to a place of profound self-sacrifice and self-denial. But he never embraced self-denial while denying the power that was innate in him and his task in the world. That we have a Christ who was confident, confident of his role as the eschatological son of man. So we see confidence. That's surprising. We also see ignorance. When I speak of ignorance, I am not using that word as many Pittsburghers use that word. When Pittsburghers say they're real ignorant, what they mean is rude. They are ignorant about the meaning of the word ignorant. When you are ignorant, it means you do not know something. And Jesus lives like the rest of us, with a degree of ignorance. He lives with unknowing. He says in, in the first verse in tonight's passage, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus shares in our lot shares in our common human frustrations, and, to a degree, shares in our ignorance, is a partaker of that same ignorance. Uh, now, this is odd because Jesus typically has uh, uncanny, penetrating awareness. He can see right into your soul. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what people's motives are. We know that from various texts in the New Testament. And yet, here, we have a moment in which Jesus expresses ignorance about a very significant fact. 
As the magistrate of the apocalypse, he is aware of his task, but he is not aware of his timing. He is, after all, very human, and that's the point. Uh, Theologians call this kenosis. Kenosis is a Greek word meaning to empty oneself. The word comes from Philippians chapter 2, and St. Paul writes in that place, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, kenosis, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When God plummets and enters fully our human situation and our lot, he gives up certain prerogatives. Think about omnipresence, for example. Uh, Unless tonight you are um, flirting with Mormonism, uh, you know that Jesus was only present in one place at one time, in Judea. He wasn't present in Judea and also in the United States, talking to uh, a group of Native Americans, right? Uh, We believe that Jesus Christ was only present in one place at one time. Now, God, in all of his uh, infinite Uh, nature is omnipresent, present everywhere. Well, with Jesus, that was limited. The same thing you can say about uh, Jesus' knowledge. There are elements of knowledge that are withheld from him as a human being. He gives up the prerogative of omniscience. Now, Jesus gifts us, I want to say, gifts us with the example of his ignorance. And there is an implicit invitation in this passage to go and be likewise. Go and be ignorant. Now, some in Christian history, uh, regarding date setting, have been confident when they should have been ignorant. We seem to ignore large swaths of Jesus' teaching when it's convenient for us, or when we think we might know better. I will uh, now give you a list of people who thought they knew when the apocalypse was occurring. Uh, By the way, these are not morons. They are not heretics. They are not people that we would want to disassociate from. But they were wrong on this matter. So Hippolytus, the author of the first Christian liturgy, at least the liturgy that we have, believed the apocalypse would occur in A.D. 500. Thomas Munzer, that um, kind of proto-pietist in Germany, thought that Jesus was coming back in 1525 and that he would return in Frankfurt, of course. Uh, there's Christopher Columbus. You didn't know that he was a prophet on the side, but he was. Christopher Columbus said that the apocalypse would occur in 1656. George Rapp, local hero, part of the Harmonite sect that uh, settled just 30 miles from here and predicted that the apocalypse would occur in 1847. John Wesley, who said it would happen before 1865. And then, of course, in our own day and age, we have Hal Lindsey, of the late great planet Earth, said it was likely to happen in the 80s, and then Harold Camping, who said it was going to happen in 1994. When that didn't pan out, he changed the date to 2011. Family Radio, his uh, sponsoring enterprise and machine, spent $5 million placarding the United States with signs that warned people they needed to repent because the apocalypse was imminent. In fact, they had a date. I want to say that date-setting and intense apocalyptic speculation is wrong for two reasons. First, it suggests that we know more than Christ, which is a leap in logic. (laughs) Additionally, and maybe more importantly, it dulls people's sensitivity to the certainty of Jesus' return. Because it seems like a laughing matter. It seems like a joke when we predict an event, and then that event does not in fact occur. So the unbelieving world around us 
thinks uh, that, that we're Looney Tunes because we act like Looney Tunes. I think we can do better by adopting the ignorance of Jesus Christ to say that there are some things that we do not and cannot know and simply leave it at that. Uh, that is not theological laxity. It is theological wisdom. Confidence and ignorance. And then Jesus gives us something to do. He says to his disciples, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. For you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Stay awake. When I was 18 years old, I was a youth leader. And I, along with other leaders, decided to raise money for the homeless shelter in Newcastle. Some of you have driven by it, maybe you've served in it. And this project involved a large group of youth from the church sleeping in the church parking lot in January. We, we had boxes there, and we were, gonna, we were going to empathize with the homeless. I mean, in, in, in the way that only suburban, white, well, you know, well-to-do kids could you know, sympathize. But, but we tried, right? We tried, so we set up our boxes, and we, well, you weren't allowed to sleep, actually. It was an all-nighter, not allowed to sleep, and you couldn't, um, you couldn't go inside the church. You had to stay in your box. Okay, here's the problem. I got really cold, <laughs> and I didn't want to stay in a box. And then I got really tired. So what I decided to do is um, say, i got to go get something in my car. And I went to my car and drove it a little ways off and then warmed the car and fell asleep. And then a little 12-year-old girl who had been out all night in her cardboard box in the morning knocked at the window saying, Ethan, I thought we were supposed to stay out all night and raise money for the homeless. Ah, friends, the Son of Man comes around when you do not expect. Pounds on your window and says, I fell asleep when I had to stay awake. Uh, Anyway, your minister. So how is this done? How do we stay awake? I think the answer, in part, lies in cultivating a proper confidence and ignorance. A proper confidence and ignorance. We need a righteous confidence, a renewed confidence in our future hope that the kingdom of God, which has come in part, will one day be fully unveiled in all of its glory and majesty. We often settle, don't you settle, for all these lesser authorities? You have these lesser authorities that kind of have their thrones over your life, and when they say dance, you dance. There's a person on a committee, and you're working on that committee right now, or there's a person in your department, or there's a person in your family, and when they walk in the room, you become different because you're dancing. It's a lesser authority, of course, under God, but but insofar as functionality dictates any truth, they're God, at least in that moment. Uh, We also do it in terms of uh, nationalism. It is a needful reminder for Christians, especially in recent days, who too often shelter in nationalism, that we confuse that which is lesser glory with greater glory. We confuse, to quote Augustine, the city of God with the city of man. Consider again the political rhetoric that we've recently had to endure, which so frequently employed apocalyptic language to describe candidates and positions. 
apocalyptic language that was either positive or negative. This will save our country. We're all going to hell in a handbasket if this person is elected. Christians have at times furthered apocalyptic rhetoric, communicating our political concerns with borderline blasphemous language. Best to reserve apocalyptic language for the actual apocalypse. Uh, to do otherwise inflames our lower natures and leads us away from the biblical vision. I want to say that the United States is not Jesus Christ's primary concern, and it mustn't be ours either. The Son of Man gives us a newer, higher allegiance. Only one nation endures beyond the thresholds of eternity. It is the empire of God under the thorn-crowned Son of Man. So may his kingdom be our confidence, and may it shift competing allegiances to a lower place on the list. So a rightful confidence, but also a rightful ignorance, that we would have a cultivated disinterest in speculative things which distract us from main things. Now, I have to say, as Anglicans, I will throw us under the bus six out of seven days of the week, right? I'll throw us under the bus. We probably deserve it. But we generally, as Anglicans, don't get preoccupied with apocalyptic speculation. We just say, I'm sure it will all pan out fine. Let's drink some sherry. I mean, and that's the end of it. And let me say that there is wisdom, great wisdom, in such a perspective. But I, I want to urge us, if we are tempted to think apocalyptically about our current scenarios, to invest in what I'm going to call theological plumbing. You are grateful for plumbing. I am grateful for plumbing. I'm also grateful that plumbing, with all of its complexity, is behind my wall, and I don't have to think about it. Uh, there are elements of theology uh, that eschew our own speculation and are hidden in the wisdom of God, and that wisdom has not seen fit to inform us. Deuteronomy 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Better to leave hidden things hidden, and better to not claim a brilliance that exceeds that of our own Christ, to leave the plumbing where it belongs. This Advent New Year celebration is a bit darker and more sublime than what we will likely experience on the 1st of January but it does point to a grander truth than January 1st. It points to the fact that it is a certainty that the world's winter melts and spring shall arrive, and just like Jesus, the world will rise from death. Hebrews 12 says this about your future and my future. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.